0: You guys are gonna crush it. you. got this. Good luck.
1: And we're proud. Isn't it funny that a group of lions is collectively called the pride? Unstoppable. Unapologetic.
2: So
3: good. So good.
4: Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Jessica Smetana, and I'm Kate Fagan. You just listened to a very schnazzy mm. England soccer team roster announcement oh, yes. that came out last week, and Kate, tell the audience what is coming up in the next month. I assume they already know, but tell them just in case. Just in case you didn't know, the Euros are about to begin in England.
5: And yes, we had that sound Jess, just... We'll have to watch this video together. I, I don't know if the Oscars have a category for two to five minute roster introductions but this is almost worthy of that it was pretty cool and I'm, i've been looking forward to the euros because this is going to be the first tournament where
4: i attempt to watch every minute that is being played Ooh! growing up i used to love watching staying home like in the summer during middle school and watching like Every single soccer game that would be on all the international games, that would be at like 7 a.m. Yep. Because we didn't have school and we were too young to work yet. So my sister and I would just watch every single soccer game that was ever on TV, mostly men's games, because I don't think many women's games were televised then. But it is something about like July oh. just feels like international soccer match to me early in the morning. Yes. Uh, maybe
5: you have a margarita
4: at the same time. Not
5: at not like at 7 a.m., but maybe once you hit 10 a.m. and there's like the horns, like the buzz of a soccer stadium that you can hear through the TV. So yes. this is the first women's Euro that I am fully invested in. A thing that happens to me, though, Jess, when it comes to watching international soccer is, like a lot of Americans, I gravitate toward... The homeland of my ancestors, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which unfortunately for me, though fortunate in other areas like maybe writing and beer, it's good. But in soccer, being from Ireland is not great. It, has, it hasn't hmm. historically been great for me. So I will be rooting for Northern Ireland in particular in Euro 2022. I don't expect them to go far,
4: but they will have my rooting interest. So wait, are you Irish or Northern Irish? I am. I mean, this we might get into some like political territory here.
5: Yeah, th- I mean that's a fair. If if Ireland were in the Euro twenty twenty two, they would be my number one rooting allegiance because I'm from County Cork in okay. Southern Ireland because they are not in Euro mainland 2022. Ireland. OK, I'm sorry. Mainland Ireland. Thank you for I don't know if you're Googling at the same time. Thank you for knowing. No, I actually country.
4: read I read a really good book by Patrick Radden Keefe about the troubles last summer. So, yeah, I I actually I know a tiny bit about the troubles, which were Northern Ireland. But I feel like it's very American to like kind of replace the two but if you lived in the UK you certainly would not yeah. so I'm not I'm sorry for mansplaining Ireland but
5: no no I mean I also know a little bit about Northern Ireland because I saw the movie Belfast
4: last year <laughs> so <laughs> Americans like we are easily the stupidest people
5: ever <laughs> there's there is no doubt about it yes yes and I think we have I have personally proven it right here at the top of this episode well anyway so let's let's get
4: away from my lack of knowledge about Ireland who will you be rooting for in Euro 22? Uh, well, I don't really have a rooting interest, but I suppose the home team England squad that we just listened to the announcement for would, would be a fun pick. You know, The English men's team hasn't been very successful since their historic World Cup win in, in 1966. So it'd be great to see the women's team do what the United States women's team has done, which is... Far succeed the male Mm. counterparts of their country.
5: I really like that, Jess. In fact, now that you're saying that, I'm picturing sold-out Wembley for the final of the Euros in July with England winning a 2020 Euro championship. But now I'm a little concerned that my rooting allegiance will go from Northern Ireland to England. And that just feels like all kinds of wrong here.
4: Yeah, right. Okay, I'll I'll work on that.
5: I'll work on that. Okay.
4: Yeah. No comment. Yeah, no no comment. We should tell the people what is on the show today. On the show today, we have a very international season finale of Off the Looking Glass. We have W Series driver and Sky Sports presenter, Naomi Schiff, mm-hmm. who came on to tell us all about the world of motorsport. And we also have an extra extra, Kate, that you wrote. Yes! Do You want me to tell the people what that's about? Yes, tell us what it's about. Well,
5: we're we're definitely bookending this episode for you, talking about the Euros at the top. And then in the extra extra, we are going to tell the story of the F.A. ban, which was England's football association ban of allowing women to use F.A. pitches. And this lasted for almost 50 years. So we are going to take you back in history and tell that story. And of course, as always,
4: don't skip the ads.
5: Our guest today on the final episode of Season 2 is a professional race car driver. She grew up in South Africa and started driving professionally at 16 years old back in 2010. She is now an ambassador for the W Series, and she's a presenter for the F1 on Sky Sports.
4: All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on. Naomi Schiff. Well, it's good to see you again. Naomi, yes. we we met in Miami for the Miami Grand Prix, which was the first race of this year's W Series. So this year, the W Series is on the Formula One undercard. And so that yes. was the first race. So can you explain to us and, and to our audience what that means?
6: So basically, um, most championships have support series in their program so that there's constant on track action. Um, when W Series first came about, we were a support series for the DTM, which is a highly established uh, GT racing championship, uh, German championship. So the first year we followed them around, and the second year, unfortunately, we didn't have a season due to COVID. So we had to postpone that. But in the meantime, W Series was able to put together an incredible partnership with F1, uh, which now means, as you said in 2021 and this year we are a support series to formula one which of course is uh, an incredible achievement i mean for all the girls racing in w series and most of us in our careers in motorsports formula one you know is the dream Um, and it's the pinnacle of motorsports whether you know we like it or not that's the top so for us to be racing alongside them and to just have the visibility and the same audience that they have is is a big big step for w series
4: Formula One has gotten more popular in the United States in the last couple years because of Drive to Survive. And so some of our audience maybe is a little bit familiar with how Formula One works and all the different constructors and the cars and everything, but W Series is set up a little bit differently. So can you kind of talk about why it's set up the way it is with with the same cars and the same engines and, and things like that and what that means for the level of competition among the drivers?
6: Sure. So basically, you know, in traditional motorsports, you would typically have, you know, different teams, potentially different manufacturers like Formula One has Ferrari, McLaren, Mercedes. Uh, W Series doesn't have a structure like that. We're all we're run by one team. So actually... All the cars are exa- exactly the same, completely identical. The girls share a locker room, so it's there's there's no like real space to be individualized in teams. Recently, they did introduce a teams concept, but it's more just to create you know branding opportunities and commercial opportunities for the championship, so that we could have a branded car in let's say Puma as we have. Um, there's a Puma team, but the cars are actually completely identical to that of a Dow team. The reason why they do that is because W Series is supposed to be um, and it is a development platform so the most important thing is for the driver's talent to shine and the only way to do that is to have equal cars when it comes to formula one you can see that some teams uh, some manufacturers have more budgets and therefore their technology is further advanced Uh, that's not a direction that w series is seeking to go at the moment as i said we want to focus on the on the driver's talent so that the best driver can win at the end of the year
4: and the other thing about W Series that's a lot different is that it's free to enter for all the drivers, right? So, how yeah. does that how is that something that changes the variables for female drivers versus male drivers that are coming up through the other racing championships?
6: Well, look, I mean, motorsports as we know is an incredibly expensive sport. One of the biggest barriers even just for entry to the sport is finance, you know? So I, for example, raced in W Series in 2019. And up until that time, I had been, you know, racing in prototype championships. And then eventually I moved to a GT championship, but I was sort of getting to a place in my career where I didn't feel like there was a a way forward without, you know, more financing, more sponsorship. I was kind of stuck, let's say, and I stopped dreaming. And then I was told about W Series, free to enter championship, everything paid for from the minute you leave your home. Basically, you just have to get yourself to your local airports and then from that point onwards all the costs are covered at first I thought it was a joke and it couldn't be it was too good to be true really but no it turns out that it is true and um, it does just give opportunities to girls who are already in the sport who are unable to progress I think it's an issue that all drivers face whether it be female or male but one thing that we obviously know is that for some reason or another females aren't able to progress in the sport and one of those issues is the fact that sponsors are less likely to back female athletes. So for them to alleviate that barrier is is absolutely incredible.
5: Naomi, for a racing novice as I am, when you say that the W Series is a developmental platform, what exactly does that mean? And does that mean, and when you look at the future, because it feels like for the W Series, like take whatever the, the next leap might be, it would be to have differentiation between cars. I mean, that's kind of like my layman's you know, view of it. So what does a developmental platform mean? Like what would you then be developing for?
6: Yeah, so typically the, the ladder is Formula 1 at the top, Formula 2, Formula 3, and W Series sort of sits just below Formula 3. The cars are, are pretty much Formula 3 spec, slightly different. But um, yeah, we as as you say, there's some some things we can't change on the car because again, we want to keep things as equal and fair as possible. So we like to call ourselves, you know, the step just below that F3. So F3, F3, F3. Formula 1 at the top, Formula 2, Formula 3, no, Formula 1, W Series, just below that F3, F3 equal and fair as possible. Formula 1,
5: Formula 2, W Series, Formula 3. Ooh, that way are down a very long, deep rabbit hole. I mean, it's a season mm. finale rabbit hole, so yes. way far down. And um, cars, cars are, are all oh, so, so loud. Yeah, I don't know why we dropped into some sort of racetrack here, but I, I don't know if we can turn that down a little bit, just so we can hear ourselves think, oh my
4: God. These engines are purring, Kate. The purr of the engine hmm That's what okay. they say. Is that what they say? That is what they say. Oh. I don't know who, but they they do. Can I come to you as my expert, my, my motorsport expert? You can. I wouldn't call myself that, but, like, I, I might... You know, you know so much about basketball. I would say you probably know a hundred times more than me about the game of basketball. I probably know, like, two times more than you about motorsport wow. So come at me with all your questions yeah. I'm probably gonna be wrong about like half of them but okay. if I say it confidently enough you're gonna believe me oh so will I will our audience. I will well I wanted I wanted to come down this very very deep
5: rabbit hole because despite doing some research before our discussion with Naomi who's way back up there it turns <laughs> out motorsports the structure of it Baffles me about as deeply as the transfer rule <laughs> in international football. Like I, I still mm. don't understand that. I'm still struggling. Let's just start off with the structure of motorsports. Like, mm-hmm. is it an apt comparison that I think of Major League Baseball, Triple A, Double A, Single A? Mm, is that the same thing
4: of. as F1, F2, F3? Is that how that's working? I, uh, it's a. I think the analogy works. So like Formula One is like the elite of the best cars, the best manufacturers, the best drivers, obviously the most money and the most fans. And then, like, some F1 teams have development drivers that are in F2 or F3 or whatever, and then, you know, W Series. And the, those racing series are all, like, where different drivers and such can practice so that they can be good in one day, hopefully be in Formula One. But it's not, like, the exact same in terms of, like, team affiliations. Okay, so it's but, not... Like, you're, Your team might, like, Mercedes will have, like, a development driver who races in F2, who's signed on with Mercedes, that kind of thing.
5: So it's sort of like how if you're a pitcher and you need a start after you've been injured, you could go race in F2. Well, they do have,
4: yeah, I mean, they do have fill-in drivers for certain weekends. Like, if someone gets COVID or something, like, you have a third driver who's, like, your kind of replacement driver. But, yeah, like, it is, it's very confusing because then there's also just – All these other racing series that have like different cars and different setups and different engines. And then there's like endurance races. And then it's just uh, there's so many different types of motorsport, Kate, that like I can't even wrap my mind around it. Is it almost like
5: how we think of the human body? You can uh, you can run the 800. You can run the mile. You can run the marathon. You can run the ultra marathon. Mm -hmm. Like in motorsports, do we
4: have all you're still using? You're still using the same two feet. It, that In is true. In motorsport, you might not have the same two feet. Okay. so You it's, might have four feet, but they're wheels. Okay. Okay. Are we helping the listener right now? I think a little are, bit. Are, is this helping you at all? Yes. Is this even correct?
5: So <laughs> what I have gathered is that motorsports are different than running. So yes,
4: they're, they're different and also different away. than baseball. Yes.
5: Okay. I think I'm, things are clearing up for me. One other thing before we go back up to Naomi, Mm -hmm. when was
4: that like, have we had an F1 women's driver? Are we close to having one again? Yes, that's a great question. So there was a woman who raced in Formula One who was Italian. Her name was Lella Lombardi. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. This was in the 70s. She raced in 13 races, I believe, or 12 races. There have been other women who have come close to racing in Formula One who have been have tried to qualify for Formula One but not actually raced in a Grand Prix. And then currently in the W Series, there's a driver named Jamie Chadwick who won the first two seasons of the W Series in 2019 and 2021. She also has won, I think, every single race up until now of this season, depending on when you're listening to this. And she is in the Williams Driving Academy. Williams is a Formula One team. There's there's 10 Formula One teams. Kate Williams is mm, like bottom three, but that means like she gets to be, she gets to like use their simulator and stuff, like things like that. She gets to test their cars, I believe. So some of the things Naomi will talk about with like how hard it is to access different equipment and practice and track time and simulators. Like if you're part of one of these academies, you'll get access to some of that.
5: Okay, so the last question I have, and it's a curveball, but... I know you can handle it I'm because we've, we've already talked baseball down I here in this I know rabbit the hole. Answer. Yeah. <laughs> what exactly are they racing in in Ford versus Ferrari? suppose
1: Henry Ford II wanted to build the greatest race car the world's ever seen.
4: Ah, Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah, great film. Well,
1: it takes something money can't buy. Money can buy speed. What about speed?
4: I watched the first half of that movie, and then I fell asleep. It was really long. So it's you like watched two hours of hours it Three hours long. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, I believe that was a 24-hour of Le Mans race, which is like an endurance race. Oh. And that race, you the setup is like you drive as many laps as you can in 24 hours, and so you have to kind of plan out like your stops and your gas and how fast you're going and everything like that. And so that's different than Formula One, which is a set amount of laps on a track, and that's different than W series, which is a sprint race. Where I believe their setup is that they are timed, and I think the races are thirty minutes. So yep. the race ends when the clock is over, and whatever lap you're on, like that becomes the final lap. Yeah,
5: and you just stop your car, and you have to walk back if you're not done. I assume, right? Right at the thirty no, minutes. No, you, so you get, get to put down your lap. Jeff's you fin- put down no.
4: your put down your gear. <laughs> It's not chopped, but also Ford versus Ferrari. They're racing in different cars. They're not like single seater cars. I think we've clarified it. I still don't know what I'm talking about. Let's go back up.
6: And when we talk about a development championship, it's it's basically a stepping stone for those drivers to get you know as much experience in as possible um, and for them to develop their skills as well as showcase their talent. So if we were to have manufacturers involved and budgets differentiating it would then again be a case of actually the person who's in the best car has the best results and therefore that talent is still unable to really pierce through to the next level Um, so when we talk about a development championship it's about that it's about getting all those drivers to the same level and then letting them battle it out purely on talent
2: All
5: right. So let's pivot here to like more about you and how you got into it and what you love about it, or maybe things that are also a struggle. But in my quick research, it seems like go-karting when you were a kid was the reason you first fell in love with driving. But can you kind of take us through that moment and, and what it is about driving that you love?
6: Yeah. So there's actually two versions of the story that I tell. <laughs> I usually start by saying, and this is the way it happened. Um, I was invited to an indoor go-karting birthday party of a family friend And I just loved it. And up until that day, I didn't have any interest in motorsports per se. I always used to want to have like a a little electric car that I could drive around my garden at home. So I think there was always that like small instinct to want to drive, but nothing serious. And then I, I showed up on the day. I've always been very competitive. I was 11 at the time. I was quite good at it, which obviously helped. And then when the day was over, I was really upset. And I said to my dad, please, can we come back again? And I sort of had to beg him for a little while, but luckily... Luckily enough, he said yes. So eventually we ended up going back a few times and my dad then bought his own go-kart because obviously I was an 11 year old girl who potentially was going through a phase. It's a lot of money to invest in equipment like that for a phase. So he bought himself a go-kart and I just joined him at the track. I always used to just drive with rental carts alongside him. And yeah, one day when he realized it wasn't a phase, he then bought me my own go-kart and the rest is sort of history. Now, the part that I left out is that my dad used to be a racing driver. And the reason why I don't start with that is because people assume that if your dad is a racing driver, then you're automatically going to get into it. But the fact of the matter is my dad had two daughters and motorsports isn't traditionally seen or hasn't up until recently been seen for a sport for women as well. So until that day, my dad never said, Let's go racing, you know, it had to the interest had to come from me for him to realize that actually, his daughter could do that as well. So obviously, I have to say a massive thanks to my dad, because I wouldn't be where I am without him saying yes. And it was quite easy for him to say yes, because he was passionate. But the fact of the matter is, he didn't think about it, because he only had two daughters.
4: When did you realize that you were really good at it, though? Like, when did you realize it was something that you could be a professional in doing?
6: Well, The first year that I started competing in karts, I was just racing at a club level. I won the club championship that year, but, you know, it's not the most professional level of racing, but, you know, it was still pretty decent to have won it in my first year. And then the next year, the, the usual route would be to race on a regional level. And then the year potentially after that on national level, we decided to skip the regional level and just go straight into nationals. And that year I ended up finishing second in the South African championship my second year of racing and that basically awarded me south african colors let's call them to represent south africa in the karting world championship so i think that was the point where i realized that it was something i could do and that how big the world was and i think that's when i really fell in love and i was like okay this is what i want to do for the rest of my life whether that was realistic or not i don't know but i definitely felt it in the moment <laughs> Yeah.
5: so my background is in basketball And when someone says like, you know, they came up and they were playing whatever, you know, here in the States, it's like AAU and then high school. I have an understanding of what it takes to get better at basketball. I'm like, okay, you know, you're in the gym or you're lifting weights, you're doing plyometrics. If you want to be great at driving, fundamentally, what are you working on on a day-to-day basis?
6: So, okay, there's a couple of things. Some things you don't always have access to, but it obviously takes a lot of discipline as any sport does at a high level, a lot of sacrifice. Some people don't realize how physical motorsports is. Some people just assume, you know, you press the pedal, you turn the steering wheel. It's all, it's all good and breezy. It's really not. It's very physical. Um, especially when you get to sort of formula levels or even GT racing, when you're in a cockpit where you've got an engine in your back, like I describe it sometimes as putting a a cycling bike in the sauna and then trying to have to perform and and focus at the same time so there's a lot of things going on physical strength and fitness is obviously an incredible uh, an incredibly big part of your training but then the most important thing that any sports person or athlete needs is time in the seat or time on the pitch or time on the course you know but unfortunately in racing it's not that simple you can't just you know put your boots on and go you've got to have some money to pay for fuel, pay for tires, pay for insurance, pay for rental of the track on the day. So it is quite challenging to say, A big part of my downfall was the fact that I wasn't able to get track time. So even when W series came around, I was able to race, but all my prep before that I had to do on a simulator because I didn't have budgets to get in a car. And as much as simulators are great tools and they can get us very close to reality, they're not reality. um, And the best thing you can do is just be in a car. So yeah, to answer your question, fitness, dedication, and track time.
4: I imagine that access to professional quality simulators is something that isn't even that easy. And is that something that you had a difficult time even accessing as well?
6: Yeah, so there's loads of different levels of, of simulators, right? So I have a simulator in my spare bedroom here, which is is not cheap. And I actually ended up investing in it because it was the same price as one day on track, uh, which... Well, it depends what team you race with, but it was around 15,000 euros. So it's not cheap equipment to invest in. But I figured, you know what, if I can't invest in one day of testing, then what am I even doing? So I did invest in that piece of equipment, but if you were to like do training on a professional simulator, which is obviously a much, much bigger piece of equipment, um, like formula one level style simulators, it's, they're not easy to come by. So I used to fly to the Netherlands to do my training sessions on an F1 style simulator. And depending on sort of who you are and what your connections were as a racing driver, you would still pay something along the lines of 150 euros per hour on the simulator. So it's, still, you know, still expensive, but yeah, not easy to come by, but it is an incredible tool. I must say. Wait,
5: did you say that your simulator was 15,000 euro, which is the same as a day on the track?
6: So I think my simulator was actually a little bit more than that. I just rounded it down a bit. (laughs) Um, but it obviously depends you know, you can, it depends on your package. If you decide to test with a team for 30 days, it'll give you a better budget. If you're just doing one day, it sort of ranges anywhere between seven and 15,000 euros, depending on the level of the team, how many sets of tires you're going to use. But yeah, typically a good day on track with a nice set amount of tires and a good team is around 15,000 euros. Yes. It's expensive. Okay. Yes. Yeah.
5: Definitely different than like taking your basketball to the local <laughs> court. Okay. It, I got it. I got it.
6: <laughs> yeah. It's expensive sports. I mean, that's the biggest issue is budgets. And, you know, if you don't have the backing, it's very, very difficult to make it in the sport.
5: What's that analogy of like the bicycle in the sauna and how much heat is generated in the car? Is there any other element you can share with us? Like that would be a surprise to people in, who don't know racing intimately about, Something that happens in the cockpit that is difficult, challenging, something during the driving of a race, right? All I think about is, oh, well, it must be very tiring if there's not power steering, right? It must be hot and your arms would get tired. Is there some surprise fatigue on another level that you can share that actually happens when you're during a race in a cockpit?
6: I think it's just, um, it, it also depends what kind of race you do. So I've raced in endurance racing. Sometimes we race in 24 hour races, 12 hour races. Then you have your sprint style, like W series, which is 30 minutes. So it all really depends on the style of the race, but there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot going on. You're wearing. Your fireproof suit is three layers of fireproof material. Then underneath that, you've got fireproof underwear. So you up to four layers. You've got a balaclava on, a helmet on, all these layers on top of you. Before you even get in the car, you're already dripping with sweat. So heat is a big one. As I mentioned, you've got the engine in your back. Um, so that's generating a lot of heat. And although in a single seater, like in the W Series Championship, Uh, It's an open cockpit. So when you're driving, there is the element of wind, which helps to cool you down a little bit. Um, You've still got all that physical force going in. As you mentioned, there's no power steering. So you're, you know, really pulling on the steering wheel. Um, The brakes, there's no ABS. So every time you hit a hard braking point, you're pushing about 100 bars of pressure into your braking pedal and now all of those things are super exhausting and meanwhile there's still loads of things going on you've got to be calculating strategy potentially you've got your engineer in your ear telling you a whole bunch of information that you've got to digest and then you've got cars all around you that you're navigating right either you're trying to close the gap to someone in front of you or you've got to defend from the person behind you how much time are you losing by defending to that person there's a lot of like mental sort of exhaustion that goes into it on top of the physical and all the heat so it's like a lot of different sort of things being thrown at you
4: do you ever drive just your normal car and accidentally like hit your brake pad too hard or like hit (laughs) the apex on a on a right hand turn and like go off the road like how do you go from racing one of these like spaceships to then going back into just your your regular car, like going to pick up groceries and, and not feel some sort of like urge to drive and race fast?
6: So that is an interesting question to ask. And actually quite a lot of drivers choose not to drive their own cars, like let's say from the hotel to the track on a race weekend, because you're so dialed into those habits. Um, but yes, it does happen that you can come out of your car and just press your brakes slightly to too hard because obviously in a car, in a normal road car, you've got ABS and all these functions and you barely have to even touch the pedal for something to happen. Whereas As I said, in the race car, you've almost got to kick the pedal to have it react. So to go from one to the other, um, obviously we're professional racing drivers, so you think we're able to adapt, but it does happen that sometimes you do press it a little bit too hard. Um, but yeah, funnily enough, a lot of drivers choose not to get into their, let's say rental cars or their own cars on a race weekend, just to make sure they stay honed into their driving for the weekend.
5: Do all your friends expect you to be like the best driver in the whole world when you're like driving friends around, like no mistakes can be made.
6: I tend to think I'm a really good driver on the road. I don't normally like I've I've actually been in a car with a lot of really, really, really good established racing drivers. Doesn't always translate onto the road with really <laughs> <enough>. you. Yeah. Name <laughs> names. Especially when it comes to parking. Because obviously you don't park a racing car, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um I tend to think I'm a pretty decent road car driver. I don't allow my friends to put pressure on me because I'm quite quite confident. I think I guess I just don't feel that pressure. Um But yeah, I think sometimes you've got people in the car who drive you around, which is probably even worse, who then feel the pressure to show you how much of a good driver they are, when often (laughs) they're not that great and you're just in a dangerous situation. So (laughs) that's something that I don't really enjoy. I'm like, don't worry, you don't have to prove yourself to me, you're all good. Take it (laughs) easy. (laughs) I
4: I need you to tell us who the bad Formula One or or professional, like like, is is Martin Brundle trying to like parallel park with you and like hitting all the other cars on the street?
6: Unfortunately, I've never been a passenger um, to Martin Brundle. I hope that one day that'll be the case, but no, I can't expose. I'm so sorry. I, don't, I, can't, I can't be making enemies.
5: <laughs> so in the last two years, right, you've tag teamed with driving for, for W Series and then now broadcasting. Yes. As somebody who has done some broadcasting, I feel like there's a different level of fear in broadcasting than in a lot of other things you can do it's probably somewhat uh tangential to like public speaking like a similar kind of struggle what has broadcasting been like for you like the pros the struggles the cons how has that been
6: well obviously i was sort of thrown into it with no experience i think what really helps is you know you would know this from basketball i guess as well as an athlete you're often interviewed so you kind of like indifferent to the cameras. So I never really felt a sense of pressure from the cameras in that case, but there was a lot of things that I didn't realize you'd have to think about, like, where do I put my hands or how do I stand? Or like when I'm not being spoken to, where do I look? So like it was all those little things that you've never thought about that. I was like, oh my God, this is so awkward. (laughs) But yeah, over time, you know, just looking at the people around me and watching a lot of programs. Now, when I watch a program, I'm not actually listening to the content as much. I do as well, but I watch in a different way. Let's say like I'm, every time I'm watching, I'm trying to learn instead of just digesting the program. I'm like, okay, why did she say that? How did she say that? Where were her hands? Where does she look next? So I'm like learning by watching the programs as well. But yeah, it's been, it's been great. I mean, I think what's really nice for me is that I'm still in the sport that I love and that makes it easier as well. I'm talking about a subject that I know quite a lot about. Um, whereas I think if I did broadcasting on any, anything else, it would probably be much more nervous wrecking um so yeah it's been good i hope i answered your question there
5: (laughs) yeah okay one more thing on the broadcasting i know you you've only been doing it a couple years so maybe you don't have an answer to this but i wanted to know what the scariest thing that's happened to you doing tv has been like For example, the prompter dropping out. If you've had a prompter, something technical, not working. So you have to kind of like ad lib. Has
6: there been a moment where you're like, there has, there has. has. So actually I don't know how many, how much detail I can go into this with this, but I was doing (laughs) a really big launch for a brand and probably at the time it would have been the biggest thing I'd ever done. And it was a quite a big jump from the last thing I did anyway. And the night before I sort of text the hair and makeup artist saying, oh, I'm not going to wear my hair like that anymore. I'm going to do this. So don't worry about doing my hair. I'll take care of it. So she was like, okay, cool. I'll see you at 6am or whatever the time was. Let's say it was seven. She was like, see you at seven. I was like, Oh, that's strange. Cause they've got a car picking me up from the hotel five so what am I going to do from five to seven this doesn't make sense doesn't add up so I said are you sure she was like yeah no no I asked if I could come earlier they said that's the schedule cool okay so I get there I'm then sitting around my co-host is having her hair and makeup done and I was just like okay well I'll just do a coffee run I guess while I'm waiting got the coffee came back she then arrived at the time she was told to arrive to be fair to her and I was like okay I'll go get you coffee while you set up so it's like Let's say 650 at this point or 750. I think it was 750. So she starts doing my hair and makeup, or she's starting with my hair. She's basically like put some products in my hair and like twirled the first curl of my head, basically. And then we got a message saying, Are you guys still set to come down in seven minutes? And I was like, (laughs) There's no way that this is happening. Like, all you want to do in such a nerve-wracking moment is be confident about at least the way that you look right you want to be sure about everything you want to make sure everything's right so that all you can do is focus on the job I didn't have any foundation on my face even and I was like this is going to be an absolute nightmare so yes that was absolutely daunting I was like what an epic fail this is how I'm introducing myself to the world it was bad Anyway, we managed to get it sorted. I just said to her, come down and pretend to be making touch ups every five seconds. And <laughs> that's right, that's we right. went live. We, I had makeup on my face. <laughs> OK, like one last nightmare.
4: quick one. I wanted to follow up with with the W series before we get you out of here. There's obviously tons of money backing it this year. I feel like I've heard more about it and seen more of it than any year previous. The races are on ESPN now. And so I'm wondering what what do you think success looks like for the W series five years from now?
6: Well, actually, I think, unfortunately, there isn't tons of money backing W Series just yet. It's definitely a growing platform and they have the best of intentions and the best of plans moving forward, but It's going to need sort of an injection of funds from investors and sponsors and all of that stuff for it to be able to to do the things that they want to do. I know that they have a five-year plan to create, you know, um, more localized racing championships and really start targeting grassroots levels. The biggest thing that W Series wanted to do was to get more women involved in the sport and the entire ecosystem. So not necessarily just drivers, but engineers, mechanics, press officers, you name it, like the whole ecosystem, there's room for more women. But when it comes to the drivers, what we have an issue with is that there aren't enough women in the sport at all. And we don't have enough young girls entering the sport at karting levels. So part of addressing that issue was giving opportunities to girls like me in our generation who are already existing in the sport and showcasing the talent and by doing that, we could get more interest from sponsors, and also create female role models for those girls in a sport that doesn't have female role models. And hopefully, by doing that, we'll get more girls entering the sport. That level is absolutely—they've nailed it. It's like there's more women with license holders in single seater racing at the moment than in any history, any point in history before. So, that's working. But in order for them to be able to take the next steps that they want to, and really, you know, create karting championships or teams, more locally locally there's going to need to be more funding so things are going well but you know hopefully with everyone being able to see how much the sport is growing and how much interest there is in it we'll have more people backing women in moisa sports so yes that would be the biggest success would be people watching it and people investing in it
5: okay i think the final question unless jess has one what is your favorite driving movie
6: I don't know if it classifies as a movie, but the Senna documentary. Oh, it's so Mm, that is such a good
4: movie. That is one of the I think
6: so many times and it makes me cry every time. Yes,
4: it is the best sports documentary I think I've ever seen.
6: Yeah. So I would. Can can I go with that
4: answer? Yeah, but I have a follow up. Okay, Um, (laughs) quickly. (laughs) Is there a movie
5: about a female driver? That has ever been made like a Hollywood movie?
6: No, I don't believe so. Not okay. that I know about, anyway. No.
5: All right, we need that. I mean, we we have movies even about women playing basketball. We have movies so we about golden
4: retrievers playing volleyball, <laughs> and and yet, <laughs> like female sport, we've we've had an entire series of this family pet playing every single sport, and yet we do not have women just doing like whatever what they, what they want to do. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And on that note, Naomi, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, ladies. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it.
3: Great gifts are hard to come by, and good gifts are often too costly. Cameo videos are a great idea, but all the good celebrities are way too expensive. That's why we've created another blood-sucking media company that offers you the outtakes from some of the best cameos at a fraction of the price. New from Cameo, it's Oopsie Doopsies, personalized video messages that didn't make the final cut. Here's an oopsie doopsie from WNBA star Melissa Stanhope.
0: Hi Kelsey, it's your girl Melissa from the Dallas Wings. I hear you got accepted to Santa Claus University. (laughs) Santa Claus, (laughs) Santa Clara, Santa Clara. Okay. Hi Kelsey, it's Melissa Stanhope. I hear you got accepted to Santa Clara on a full soccer scholarship. Congratulations, that team is ridiculously good. You must be an actual beast. Well, not an actual beast, like like a beast on the field. <laughs> Note to self, don't call the customers beast. <laughs> Let's do that again. Hi Kelsey, it's Melissa Stanhope. I hear you got accepted to Santa Clara on a full scholarship for soccer. <laughs> Yikes. Hi Kelsey, it's your girl, Melinda. Do you even know your own name? Melissa, Melissa, Melissa. And I hear you're majoring in pre-law too. That's great. It will come in super handy when you have to sue the university for violating Title IX. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, I probably shouldn't say that on here. I am in a mood. But in all seriousness, that degree will come in great for reading NIL contracts. Make sure you start monetizing now. It's getting dangerous out there. (laughs) Too dark? A little dark, okay, Melissa, pull up. I guess I should leave you with some words of advice about starting your college journey. Is that because nothing can from the dream. I'm actually deep in the Australian outback right now. Money in the offseason, Which goes to show you, break is already over. <laughs> Gotta pay that mortgage. Follow your dreams.
3: The reviews are in. Oopsie Doopsies are a stone cold hit. See what some of our customers are saying about their favorite video messaging outtakes app.
0: Hey, it's actually Melissa again. I don't think we have any customers at this point, it's it's really a bad idea and I'm kind of the only one uh, messing these up so badly that the outtakes are longer than the videos themselves. Um,
3: but, they're cheap! Oopsie Doopsies, the affordable way to Cameo. Get one for somebody you love today.
0: Thanks for buying an Oopsie Doopsie, which is only a little less embarrassing than an OnlyFans.
3: Welcome. Live from Wembley. Well, today's the day. I'm here for the announcement for the England squad for the Euros. Really from Bedroom it's Dreams been, to AstroTurf to
1: Sunday League to Stadium, day. England raised a lioness in every corner of the country. Our family, our time, our year, breaking down barriers like never before. These are more than teammates, more than friends. Sisters got history because the three lions were born from a
5: lioness. On July 6th, the 2022 European Championships kick off with England playing Austria at Old Trafford in Manchester, a match that's already sold out. The tournament is being hosted by England's football association, the FA. Recently, a player for Iceland, one of 16 nations in the upcoming event, criticized some of the venues being used which include a pitch used by Manchester United's reserve team the FA chief Mark Bullingham responded by saying this quote the absolute truth of it is we did a tender process throughout every major ground and city in the country and there were very few that came forward in wanting to host the women's Euros we think we have some brilliant venues but if you think people were knocking our door down to host matches that was not the case This pre-tournament exchange perfectly sets the stage for the story I'm about to tell you. That the head of the FA is telling us, with apparently zero sense of irony, that, you know, women's sports is the reason they couldn't book all stellar venues for the European Championships, well, that actually maps frighteningly well onto history. That an organization that once banned women from playing on its fields for 50 years is surprised to still be dealing with the aftershocks of its own misogyny is, well, not surprising. Okay, here we go. Back in time to tell the story of the F.A. ban. It begins in 1863, when the rules of football are first written down and the Football Association is first formed. So when the Football Association was formed in 1863,
1: it was by and large for young men who were Oxford and Cambridge educated, who really only wanted to agree a set of rules for themselves to play. That was Jean Williams, professor of sport at the
5: University of Wolfhampton.
1: It spread very quickly to the masses and became the kind of people's game. So by World War I, the FA had never really taken a stand on women's football before, apart from banning women's teams from playing against men's teams in 1902. And they did that because it was really popular with paying spectators. So
5: in England, in the early 1900s, women play football. In fact, in many working class towns, the local community, and men in particular, support the women's and men's teams in equal measure. Here's Flo Lloyd Hughes, who covers football for The Athletic.
2: The explosion of football in England in general, sort of pre-1921 and across kind of men's and women's football, a lot of it is rooted in industrialism and warehouses and, and jobs like that, where you'd often have a football team that was attached to a factory or something like that. And that would be the leisure activity for that uh, group of workers their boss would give them a day off where they could play games. And that was a really popular thing. And that kind of led to the explosion of football in the kind of early 1900s. Then comes World War One. Back to Jean here.
1: The key thing about these women's games is that it was ordinary men, by and large, a kind of aristocracy of the working class who went along to support the women's games so it's not like women's football was for women during world war one it was the men who traditionally loved local football who went along to support women's football and they treated it absolutely as significant as they did their you know any other football that they went along to watch and they went along week in and week out
5: And this, World War I, is when things get sticky. The easiest comparison to what happened in England with football during World War I is what happened in America with baseball during World War II. Rosie the Riveter, a league of their own. That is, women moving into men's spaces to support a war effort. But one important distinction. During World War I, English women did dangerous work in factories during the day then played football to raise money at night. Here's Jean again.
1: There is a parallel within a league of their own because they played football to raise money for charity. But the gist of that is that a lot of the charities were, you know, for wounded soldiers and for disability charities and for health charities. And so it was a kind of double war work is how I always describe it. You know, rather than taking on this job in a factory and then resting in the evening, they went out to play football to work again. And that's why the ban is particularly spiteful. And here
5: we are, the ban. When the war ended and men came home, women were pushed back into their traditional roles in society.
1: I think it was motivated by a return to What many people saw as a return to social norms that had been active before the war. So women were thrown out of their jobs and had to retrain. And so they were seen to be invading the pitches, if you like, and there needed to be
2: some ruling. This is Flo Lloyd-Hughes again. By the time the ban came into place, women's football was as popular, if not even more popular, than it is now. They had kind of over 50,000 fans coming to watch games pretty regularly. I think the really big game that a lot of people talk about is a game that Dick Kerr Ladies played. The Dick Kerr Ladies, a famous club and watched by
5: 53,000 people, with 10,000 more waiting outside on
2: Boxing Day, 1920. Dick Kerr ladies played at Goodison Park, I think not long before the ban came into place. It was massively popular. And I think a lot of people think that was probably something that the football association were perhaps a bit intimidated by. They were a bit worried about the huge popularity of women's football and they wanted to kind of put a stop to it.
5: The ruling was swift and decisive. On December 5th, 1921, the Football Association announced that women would not be permitted to use any of the FA's pitches, which essentially covered every halfway decent field in the country. Its reasoning? The game was, quote, quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. Of course, as Jean explains, protecting women was just the pretense for what they were actually defending. When
1: I think about the ban,
5: it's protecting a vital
1: resource, the pitch, for male players. It's not a ban on women playing football as such. It wasn't said that they couldn't do the activity at all, such as came in in Brazil in 1946. It was a ban on them playing on FA-affiliated pitches. So it protected those pitches
5: for male play. Yeah, women could technically still play football in England. It wasn't illegal. Women's football becomes
1: an itinerant activity. Nobody's got their own ground. It becomes something that's played on parks and pitches in front of like one man and his dog. It's perceived as a bit unusual. Women did still play, of course, but the facilities were non-existent and it wasn't taken seriously.
6: The electrical engineers, bright sparks to you, have challenged the munition workers, the great guns, to a football match. That's right, took it in, Tessie. After the powder, we shall be seeing a shot or two.
5: That was from an ITV special in the UK about the ban. So, not illegal to play, no, but the effect is similar. Social ostracizing for those English women who do, over the decades, continue playing. Back to Jean. It forced women
1: onto spaces where they couldn't, they couldn't encircle the pitch. Therefore they couldn't charge people to pay to watch them play. And it invented a tradition whereby women's football was not seen as spectacular as men's because there wasn't that spectator element to it.
5: The ban lasts through the thirties and then World War II, then the fifties and sixties too. And it has this compounding effect. Women playing football is an oddity, and when it happens, it's not something anyone would want to actually watch anyway. Still, of course, during those decades, women keep the game alive. Here's ITV again. In 1966, the Leicester City
1: Ladies Football Club was formed. We had good fun, but we had to raise all our own money. The FA would not let us have pitches, and some of the pitches hadn't got female changing areas anyway. It was quite different to today. We changed in garages, in the cars, sometimes somewhere else, then drove in the boots to the
5: match. Road in the boot, British for trunk, FYI, to the match. Finally, the 1970s roll around and some major shifts happen. That sound you heard was the buzzing crowd of 110,000 fans who packed Aztec Stadium in Mexico City to watch the unofficial 1971 Women's World Cup. With the women's game gaining traction in other countries and the shifting societal winds and the forming of unofficial women's clubs around England and the creation of the unofficial Women's Football Association in 1969, and with pressure from soccer's European Union, UEFA, the FA finally rescinded its ban in 1971. When the FA lifted the ban in 1971, Leicester
1: City ladies finally got a pitch. First one was at Western Park in Leicester. Wasn't the best, but it was a pitch.
5: And in the many decades since, and especially the last few years, the game in England and around the world has grown rapidly. TV deals for the women's teams in the Premier League, 91,000 watching Barcelona earlier this year, sold out stadiums for key matches. Of course, those highlights are just that, the highlights. And often, too often, we're still reminded that so many still see women's football as secondary and undeserving of the best pitches.
1: Let's just take the example of World Cup in France, 2019. The final of that wasn't played in the national stadium of France. It was played down in Lyon. Because there was an assumption that they wouldn't be able to fill the national stadium in France. And that's still going on. So we're 50 years after the 50-year ban. And we're still dealing with the reinvention of the secondary nature of women's football.
5: And hopefully at, say, the next Euros four years from now, there won't be any matches played on reserve fields. Or there won't be clubs reticent to host because women's football is on a meteoric rise. But as always, we can't adeptly react to the present or be properly prepared for the future if we haven't fully absorbed our past. The Euro Championships, they kick off in England on July 6th.
4: Imagine all the women, if they didn't ban soccer.
3: Oh, I like that.
4: They would have been so much better.
5: I'm actually tone deaf, so this is really upsetting. (laughs) Wow, yeah, you are. (laughs) Um,
4: It's bad.
5: Okay, but, you know,
4: it's crazy, (laughs) Kate, when you think about, like, all of the years lost to... Just, mm. you can't even play. You're not allowed. Don't play. No. But also, once you yeah. start playing, you're not good enough, and we don't care about you because no one cares about this. Because historically, you haven't done it. So, because yeah. we didn't let you. Anyways. Mm. No, it's, uh yeah. It
5: has been one of the themes of this season, too, is going back in time and telling stories of the moments in history where women have been relegated to the sidelines and in this case almost quite literally mm-hmm. it was like one of the women I one of the women I was talking to Flo I didn't use this particular part but I basically asked her I was like well women could still keep playing and she's like yeah for sure for sure for sure if they found a field that wasn't an official FA field and if they kept their own time and their own scorebook it wouldn't have ever counted for anything but yeah sure like they could have done that and I was like okay so worst conditions imaginable check so
4: you're saying no
5: no but maybe in season three I think we should venture to make sure that it is as uplifting as it can possibly be because we have told some somber stories of the history of women's sports here in this season too
4: we have but you know Kate I think I think we've learned a lot of uplifting Mm. lessons too which is that maybe if you live long enough, they'll unban soccer and it won't matter because you won't be able to play it anymore. But Hey, at least we're passing it down to the next generation question mark. (laughs) That's right. If you live long enough, they will allow you to play, but you will be ridiculed at every turn. That is the (laughs) uplifting message of
5: the FA ban.
4: Well, Kate, we'll be back for season three in a few months. We'll take a little break, gather some more stories do some more fun interviews I can't say exactly when we'll be back but we will be back so please stay tuned for another season of off the looking glass and we hope you enjoyed season two we had fun making it and before we
5: go we will just one final time on season two thank the people that helped make this show you producing it co-hosting it Carl Scott executive producing it Joel Shupak sound designing it Nameless Numberhead, Mari and Henry Riggs for their comedy, their endless comedy from season one and season two. And thank you, Kate,
4: for writing all of these extra extras for us. Oh, you're welcome. And for my singing, I think I should also be thanked as well. I'm not going to thank you for that. That was an assault on my earbuds.